Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. Break a leg. Have a good show. Good afternoon, everyone. Marge Halperin here. Happy to be here at WCPT. So much happening today, and we have a lot packed into the show. If you've been listening to me from time to time when I come in for Joan Esposito, you know I like to pack it in. I like to hear, talk to lots of people, whether they're my guests that I schedule or you folks on the phone, um, and I like to cover lots of topics. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, on the air, while Tyree Nichols' funeral is going on in Memphis, is a meaningful moment moment for sure. And we are going to start our show talking about police aggression and changing the culture, if that's even possible. There are some changes going on here in Chicago. We're in the middle of an election cycle, as you know, where we can not fire Superintendent Brown, but as Willie Wilson likes to say, we can fire his boss. And uh, based on a poll I was looking at this morning, about 75% of the voters think we should fire the boss, but they can't agree on who to replace her with, which may be her route to another term. We can talk about that uh, as the afternoon goes on, too. Um, But don't forget, we're also voting on the new police district. So when you talk about impacting policing in Chicago, we have a unique opportunity here in Chicago to elect grassroots representatives who can really help from the bottom up to change this culture. And that's what uh, we'll talk about in just a couple minutes uh, with Frank Chapman from the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. And uh, the second half of this hour, talking about police accountability, we'll have Professor Craig Futterman. He's the director of the Civil Rights and Police Accountability Project at UFC, and he has been working on civil rights issues for a couple of decades now, uh, dating back to some uh, lawsuits where he represented residents of Stateway Gardens. Um, who were abused by the kind of militarized police unit that uh, killed Tyree Nichols. So there are a lot of ties in this story to what's happening today, um, tying back to what we experience here in Chicago. Three o'clock hour, we're going to talk about the CTA. Um, I like to think of this under the banner of, can this CTA be saved? Uh, Probably... But there's a lot of work to do, and we're hearing the mayoral candidates with a lot of ideas about that, too, right? So we're going to spend that hour uh, talking to John Greenfield, the editor of Streets Blog, who I know is no stranger to the WCPT audience, uh, and also Obayi Reed, who is president and CTO of the Equiticity Racial Equity Movement, which is a mouthful, but an incredible organization that is really working from the grassroots on equity in transit services, but also overall in this city. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. And finally, in the four o'clock hour, we're going to talk about 
an upcoming election that is for sure going to go to a runoff in April, but can impact our lives for many years to come. This is not the Chicago mayoral election. It's the one across the border in Wisconsin where they're going to elect a Supreme Court justice who can, if they choose the right one, tip the balance of the Wisconsin Supreme Court to progressive control. Just think about the impact that will have against the conservative-controlled legislature in Wisconsin, but also think about the impact that is surely going to have on the 2024 election for all of us. So it's um, dovetailing, more than dovetailing, it's tracking just about exactly with our Chicago election, which I know we're all focused on, and there's a lot of great campaign work going on here and a lot of conversation about the mayoral candidates, but we cannot look away from that Wisconsin Supreme Court race. Two years ago, uh, we in Chicago, and I'll say we in Indivisible Chicago, were instrumental in running phone banks and uh, text banks to help win a progressive seat in that election in the middle of COVID when they were shutting down all the voting sites and thinking surely uh, progressives and people of color would not make it to the polls, but they did, thanks in part to the work that we did across the border. So we're going to talk about that work also at 4 o'clock. So it's a big agenda. And I have Lady B across from me, so it's all going to go smooth as glass, at least her part. Uh, She can't be responsible for me. Uh, I have to live up to my own uh, responsibilities here. So you know that you can call to join our conversation. That's 773-763-9278. And we'll look forward to bringing you into the conversations as we go along. But we're going to start out with Frank Chapman, who is on the line with us now. Frank is the field organizer for the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, known as CARPER. He's also education director, which is what makes him such a great spokesperson uh, for us and others. No, what makes him a great spokesperson is he really knows his stuff. He is a great spokesperson. He's a hard worker in the field and a great guest to have. Hi, Frank. How are you? How are you doing? My pleasure to be here. I'm great and happy to have you. Um, we are talking now as the funeral for Tyree Nichols gets underway in Memphis. And so before we get into the Chicago issues, I, I just thought I'd give you a chance uh, to say a few words that are on your mind and in your heart right now. Well, first of all, my heart condolences to the family and uh, and their friends and relatives. Uh, it's a very tragic uh, thing that happened in Memphis, and uh, we're all touched by it. And hopefully we will all be moved to take action uh, because of it. Because, uh, you know, uh, his courageous mother, Ty- Tyree's courageous mother, has challenged us all to uh, 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 do something about this death, not to let this, uh, this unwarranted murder mm-hmm. of another person be uh, 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 be, be without us uh, bringing about some changes, and so um, uh, we, uh, we 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 have every intention of honoring her wishes and carrying them out here in Chicago to the best of our uh, ability. You know. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I, I just want to say about the. Uh, uh, the, the police in Memphis and, 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 and the police generally, uh, 
this is not about uh, 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 the guilt or innocence of, 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 of just five police officers or six police officers. And or eight or to keep the be. numbers growing. Yeah. Uh, eight, yeah. Because, you know, first of all, they were carrying out a policy. That Scorpion thing was a creation of, uh, of the Memphis Police Department. Uh, police department, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 we have similar similar things going on here in Chicago and cities throughout the United States. You know, uh, they have to quit criminalizing and murdering people in the black community and the brown communities. You know, that, that mm-hmm. just has to happen. And 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 the only way that that's really going to happen is that we, the people, make it happen. Because apparently, Congress has no intent on making it happen. They've been sitting on the George Floyd bill forever. You know, uh, and and so Biden, you know, what does it take to get him to get him moving? Another tragedy. So every time we have one of these great tragedies that are are just so just such unspeakable horror, you know, it it, it paralyzes everybody for for a moment. And and, and, and they start talking about what they're going to do. And then they end up doing nothing. You know, so here in in Chicago, I'm, 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 I'm really pleased that. We we are in a historical moment here, where we can do something. Where we can do something. We on on February twenty eighth, we can vote. We can vote. We can vote people in our communities into a position of power where they will have the ability to have a where they will have the ability to exercise a decisive voice in saying who polices our communities and how our communities are policed. You know. I'm talking about the district council elections. You know? That's right, and yeah. and also the mayoral election because, as I said earlier, well, uh, well, the, the, the boss the counts. Are not, they're not new. No, they're not <laughs> right. And, and 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 it's not a it's not a movement of of, of self empowerment, which is what, which is what we have with the, with the city with the district council elections. Uh, but I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not saying that the mayoral elections are not important. They're very important, you know. And uh, we need to get that business straightened out too. But the the new the new thing on the scene here, and what can make uh, a, for a great democratic advance, not only in our city but in this whole entire nation, is the district council elections. Yeah, I'm talking the people that are running in those elections are, are black and brown people. Most of them are, are they come from the urban poor and the working class. And they're not professional politicians, and this is not a professional politician office. You know, this is a, this is a, uh, a position that really uh, gives gives people in the community an, an opportunity to exercise their civic duty, because they're only going to be getting a stipend of five hundred dollars a month. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. this is, uh, and, and they're not going to be getting any big donations from the corporations and 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 and, 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 and other. A competing vested interest in this city, who are trying to put put forward their own uh, selfish agendas. You know, this is going to be about the people in the community deciding who they want to represent them, to hold the police accountable for what they do and what they don't do. So, what will the power of these councils be exactly? Can you explain how they will be able to bring that grassroots pressure to bear? On actual well, they police will, policy, they, they will they will create. A, a, they're responsible for the creation of a citywide uh, commission, which will be uh, uh, nominated by them. They'll nominate fourteen people, and the mayor is uh, obligated by law 
to pick seven of the 14. Uh, and, and these people, will, two will represent the south side, two will represent the west side, two will represent the north side, and one will be at large. And and, and the district councils are going to be the, the, the eyes and the ears of this commission. And this commission will, will have oversight over all police policies. All. Whatever the police do, they can look at it. And they can make suggestions. And they can initiate policy changes. This has never happened before. No, no. It's exciting. I think that will uh, add a level of transparency as well as grassroots power to the operations of police. Especially, well, let's use the example um, of those militarized units. You know, we don't... I don't think we know whether there are any units like that in Chicago. I saw the other day that uh, Cam Buckner was calling for uh, full disclosure about whether there are any and then demanding that if there are any, they be disbanded. We don't know whether the police operate that way or not, do we? Well, we do know. Well, we know how they act on the street, but whether those units are... Well, we know we, we, we know that, that Chicago... Uh, uh, has the highest incidence of police torture, organized police torture, that is, that goes on within the police districts of any city in the nation. You know, we know that they have a black site over there in, in, in Holman, uh, yeah. Holman Square. You know, we we mm-hmm. we know that John Burge was, was, was found guilty of perjury when we came to torture people. We know that we have a, uh, a, a commission on, on, on torture the only state in the nation that has such a commission, and the reason why we have that commission is because hundreds of innocent people went to jail for crimes that they did not commit because they were tortured into, into, into making confessions. Right. So, so these are things that we do know. We know that the city of Chicago has given a lot of these torture victims reparations and so forth. So we know we we know what the police crimes have been. You know, mm-hmm. it's a matter of public. It's a matter of public record. We know what we know what the police crimes have been. So this gang database thing, we we we, we know what that has been all about. We 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 know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we know about these special patrol units and so forth and so on. And so what we need to do is, is expose them all and get them out in the open, and right. and 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 eliminate them. Right. They're not they're not, serving, they're not serving any useful purpose. Nope. Or legal purpose, most likely. You know, you you told me the other day that 90% of the people running for the police districts are black, brown, and poor. Uh, That's a significant fact. And I want to talk more about that. Uh, We have a break coming up, and I'm getting a signal from Lady B. Let's, uh, Let's... Let's focus on that, what it means to have true grassroots community folks in these districts when we come back. The devil's advocate to allow classified documents of any stripe to be laying around different offices is certainly concerning uh, to every American as well it should. But the other side of that is, as you compare this circumstance as we know it and this circumstance with Trump as we know it, the motivation and the way that the, the two men worked when it was discovered and how they worked with NARA are, are totally different as it is reported. The devil's advocates, weeknights at 7 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. 
Joan Esposito. Live, Live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. We are live, local, and progressive, and there's a whole lot to talk about this afternoon. We're back with Frank Chapman, and I uh, just before the break, Frank, I used that statistic that you gave me a few days ago, that 90% of those running for the Chicago police districts are black, brown, and poor. Now, we're focused sometimes on um, the fact that the FOP, the uh, police union is running some candidates, um, but you think uh, the community is going to outnumber them? Well, the community already does outnumber them. Go on the board of elections and look at look at who's on the ballot. You can't get elected if you're not on the ballot. <laughs> at least we have that to count on, right? <laughs> so, I'm, I'm going by most of the people who are on the ballot. You know, yeah, that's uh, a good working, indicator. We, uh, my my organization, the Chicago Alliance Against Racism, we're, we're working with most of the people on the ballot. We are working with most people. We help train them. We uh, we're working with them, so mm-hmm. we, we we know we know what we're talking about. So the FOP didn't mount the offensive that they were rumored to be doing. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that their bark was bigger. I'm saying that their bark was bigger than their bite. Ah. Because uh, uh, first of all, they don't have that much respect on the south side and the west side. For sure, and, and that's and, and, that, and that's where that's where that, that's the base from which we're doing most of our organizing. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're talking about at least fifteen districts that they don't have a, a strong base in, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we have we have an opportunity of winning those 15 districts. There's only 22 districts, you know. Yeah, now, yeah. Some, there's not some, 50. Some, <laughs> districts have, some districts, they have a, a strong base in it because they live there. Right. You know, they make up, they make up, they make up uh, a significant part of the voting population there. But on the south side and the west side, you know, which is mostly... Uh, black and black and brown folks, uh, they do not have uh, a, 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 a voting base, and so they don't have a lot of candidates running in these uh, in, in, in these in these districts. Uh, we do, we do. That makes we, sense. Uh, we're we're working with over fifty candidates. My That's phenomenal. We're working with about 52 candidates. And so of those candidates, uh, we uh, uh, we know that uh, uh, a good many of them, if not the, if not the, if not the overwhelming majority of them, are going to get elected because uh, they, uh, they're on the ballot. <laughs> the threshold is low. You're not going to need uh, thousands of votes to get on these districts. Yeah. And the name recognition well, of having any organization at all is going to put them over. I think you're right. Yeah, we're going to. And, and, you know, they were not prepared to deal with us on this uh, because they didn't think that we could get the, we could get this law passed. Yeah. When we got this law passed, they panicked. You know the uh, uh, the president of the FOP uh, said that the, that, that now the, the, the criminals were going to be in charge of policing in Chicago. That's what they feel about this law. That's you what know? they feel, really sadly, right. about most of the residents. It's on the west and south sides of the city. Absolutely, they think that we're all criminals over here. So, uh, 
so they 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 um they kind of uh, 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 you know uh, maneuvered themselves out. Now they may have right in they may have they, have, they may have a flash of right in candidates uh, uh, at the last minute, but I don't I think that's over. I don't think they can do right ins no more uh, because uh, the only people that can do right ins now is people who were uh, they got until the twenty first people who were knocked off the ballot. People who had, who had that's right. Things. Same as for aldermen, right? Yeah. Yeah, but now, so they, so, so their, their bark is bigger than their bite. They're, they're they're talking a lot because they want to give the people the impression is that this that this thing has been a failure before it even started. It's it's not a failure right now. This is a success. We have an interim commission that. Uh, that is active. That's been that's been calling monthly meetings. We have an interim commission that is that is that is, that is putting a stop on the gang database. You know that is challenging the police department right now as we talk. And we have active candidates that are going to win those positions in the districts in terms of district council. And so this is in motion. I don't think they can stop it. And once these people are elected. And once we get in power, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to take this reform back. Oh yeah. Usually, I say. Usually, I say, reforms are given us with a teaspoon and taken back with a shovel. Well, in this case, <laughs> we shoveled in a reform. <laughs> yeah, in, you did. In, 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 in this case, <laughs> we 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 got a shovel, and so and so the the FOP is a teaspoon. You know, yeah, yeah, and 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 and, 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 and so we're not worried, and, and we're not afraid, and, and all that barking that they're doing, and all those stretches that they're making, you know, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't frighten us. They're trying to scare people in the community to, 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 to make them think that if uh, if the community gets a greater voice and a greater role in saying how we're policed and who polices us, that that's going to bring about a new crime wave. Well, we've been dealing with crime wave after crime wave after crime wave, wave with them putting more and more police in with military hardware right. and surveillance and all of that type of stuff. So what they have been doing and what they what they claim works has been a dismal failure. Let democracy do this. That's right. Let's, let democracy do this. Let me ask we you... We have a democratic right to police our own community. <laughs> you absolutely do. I, I think this is so exciting, and uh, I, I, I've compared it to work that I was involved in decades ago on getting local school councils, which is a similar process. And um, there were problems with them when they started, and people said, oh, the whole law has to be uh, taken back. This isn't working. It's a failure. But you can't take that back. Once you let democracy out of the bag, I... I certainly hope this is true nationally as well as locally. You you, you can't uh, take it back. I want to ask you one more question, and that is you're stimulating voter turnout in neighborhoods that may not traditionally have had strong turnout. Uh, and more than that, you're bringing out people for democracy and for grassroots involvement with a certain point of view, a certain kind of voter will come out for these districts. Uh, could you just take a guess? I won't hold you to it. How do you think they'll break for mayor? Because they might as well vote for mayor while they've got a ballot in their hands, right? 
I think a good number of them would probably vote for Brandon Johnson. Yeah. Because he is, mm-hmm. if you look at the, if you if you look at the websites, uh, only on his website do I see a position being taken on this, and he has he has shown a a a a, a willingness to work with us in terms of these these district council elections. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think Cam Buckner has it on his website, too. I haven't looked specifically for all of them, but I think he does. But and I know uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll check that out because I missed that. But I, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. But the main thing is in terms in terms of the field, in terms who mm-hmm. do we see in the field? Who do we see out here in the streets that's canvassing with us and whatnot? We see Brandon's people. Yeah. Yeah. We don't see nobody else. You don't see the current mayor, do you? No, <laughs> current man, the current the current man is a problem for us. She's yeah. a problem in getting this law passed, and is a and now she's a problem in getting it enforced. Well, I said at the top of the show uh, that I had seen a poll that seventy five percent voters do not want to reelect this mayor. They got to come together. Um, they got to narrow that field to the other eight. So you're talking about one way that's happening. Frank Chapman, I am so glad that you joined me this afternoon. I have to say, if somebody didn't already come up with don't moan, organize, you would have coined the phrase because that is how you are living your life. And we're all grateful for the work that you're doing. Good luck in these elections. Thank you for that Mother Jones quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who wants to improve on Mother Jones? No, thank you. Right. <laughs> Thanks a lot. We'll talk again. This is WCPT 820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. Good afternoon, and thanks for joining. If you want to join on the air, you know our number, and if you don't, here it is, 773-763-9278. We'd be happy to have you talk to us about your experiences with Chicago Police your uh, feelings about the police districts. Did you learn something new from uh, Frank Chapman? I'm pretty sure you did because that <laughs> man knows, knows it all. And I learned something every time I talk to him. He's a great guest. Um, and speaking of great guests, we're going to move now to continue our conversation about police, uh, slip away a little bit from the election and talk about uh, the management mechanism and culture of the Chicago Police Department, which is what this accountability issue is really all about. My guest now is Professor Craig Futterman. He is the director of the Civil Rights and Political Accountability Project at the University of Chicago. Uh, He has a long and impressive career. His resume would take me the next 10 minutes to read to you, but uh, look it up because he's got uh, a lot of experience fighting for civil rights as a private attorney where he specialized in police misconduct and anti-discrimination litigation, including a major case involving residents of Stateway Gardens, uh, and in the juvenile division of the Cook County Public Defender's Office. Uh, in 2007, he co-authored a article uh, and report on the Chicago Police Department's broken system. Pretty sure it's still broken, and that's why we're talking to Professor Futterman to find out what uh, his uh, insights are today. Welcome. Happy to have you. 
so kind of you to have me, Marge, and thanks for all those kind words. Well, thanks for all your work. The city is better for it. There's no doubt about it. But we still have a way to go, I would say. Um, would you still headline a report on the Chicago police by calling it a broken system? No, because I actually, you know, I, I think I actually made a mistake when I called it broken back in 2007 because broken would mean that it's it's not working and the problem is is that it's working exactly as it's supposed to work um, so uh, so so actually I think the word broken broke broke broken was um, not exactly right at the time wow that's um sad but true uh, for sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I, back in the summer of 2020, which is so pivotal uh, for anyone who wasn't by then paying attention to watch protesters, people in the street protesting police brutality, being brutalized as we watched on television or for some of us out our windows, um, depending on where you live. And uh, that was really how it was supposed to work. Yeah, so I, I mean, in particular, so like the article, and, and that was about accountability, and particularly its disciplinary system, and you know, and what we what I saw back then, um, and um, has you know re- remained the case, although we can we can get more nuance about it, was that. Um, Nobody, if you're in the Chicago police force, particularly if you abuse someone who's black or brown, the likelihood that you will be disciplined is almost non-existent. And um, then when actually looking then at the investigative files behind, um, behind after, you know, incident, instance after instance of horrific abuse, you would see exactly why um, the probability is non is non-existent because you would see that not that this system is broken but that these investigations were actually designed to lead to the same result um, a result of no discipline not being sustained nothing nothing to do here and that 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 system and that disciplinary system and so creating the system um, is was very well designed to say look um, you have a complaint um, there's this assist there's a system that will deal with it and um, and the system that I'm talking about is is really a system of denial denial of the reality mm-hmm. of systemic of systemic problems systemic abuse that continues to exist in the Chicago Police Department and that disciplinary system it was and is a critical part of that larger machinery of denial and um, machinery now of resistance to change. But we are, in, and I'll stop. For yeah, that's all right. Go. We are. We are. We are. Mm-hmm. We are. I mean, I, now, so that we are in a different place now, or there, we are in somewhat of a different place now than we were then, because actually, for the very first time. Um, in history in Chicago, um, the latest agency that is charged with investigating police misconduct called COPA, and it's been like alphabet soup. It's changed from first the police department, and there's still the police department in internal affairs. Then they called it um, OPS, professional responsibility, then IPRA. Um, mm-hmm. but, but the same, same, 
alphabet soup that was leading to, you know, the, the same, you know, to, to further the same ends. But for the very first time in Chicago history, I'm seeing that agency and, and give credit where credit's due under the leadership of Andrea Kirsten, actually a former prosecutor, um, who actually I, I see doing and I've seen these investigations, credible investigations. And for the first time in Chicago history, there have been recommendations to hold police officers accountable when they abuse people. And indeed, in the last year, um, COPA recommended more officers to be fired than in the prior five years combined. COPA recommended actually discipline and sustaining cases in that last year in, in more than the last five years combined. Now, that's there's a difference also be, in, in between a recommendation and does it actually happen? Um, many of those recommendations have been um, have never went into effect and have been overturned either by the police department through the superintendent and um, in the police board then in not following through in COPA's recommendation. Um, and we can talk about lots of reasons why. But I do want to say that I think that is there is some good news to, and probably some other good news that Frank talked about that, you know, one, that there's been at least a baby step toward not community. We're not a community control of police, but there's been at least a baby step toward some community power and real power in the oversight of policing in Chicago. Um, two, um, there is COPA, an agency that at this moment is doing far from perfect, but far better than it's ever done in history. And three, um, the other thing that gives me hope, um, although we can talk that we're still so far away, is that there's a federal consent decree over the Chicago Police Department and that federal consent decree. And one thing that's different about that consent decree than any other consent decree, police consent decree in U.S. history is that um, people in the community and a coalition of community-based groups in which we're involved actually have the power um, to enforce that decree in court, um, and that is a, a, a first in history, although that power has been limited in every way possible by the police department and by the city in trying to keep the community on the outside and sidelines looking in, in as outsiders rather than as an integral part of any process of change. And finally, I guess the big headline would be um, CPD remains just as resistant to change. There's still that same culture of resistance to change, denial of the reality of even a problem, that we have a problem, that um, police abuse is going on, that brutality is going on, that torture ever happened, wrongful convictions, that mm. this is stuff just made up by criminals and um, progressive, progressive press and lawyers. So, um, Lord, um, this is, we've made some steps forward. Um, police in Chicago have killed less people, and that's important, and that's, yeah. that really matters. They've killed less people and have hurt less people, so that is harm reduction um, than they have in the past, but they're still unnecessarily hurting people. They're still unnecessarily killing people. And one thing that hasn't changed is the people who are being hurt and killed. 
same as it was when I wrote that article, same as it was 20 years before that. Um, black folks are more than 10 times as likely to be beat by police than others. Yeah. yeah. You know, one thing that comes to mind when you say that, we are speaking while the funeral of Tyree Nichols is going on in Memphis, and people say, well, that can't be racist. The cops were black. Well, would you like to picture black cops or any, yeah, but really black cops beating a white man to death? Yeah. Race? No, that, that's, no that, way. That's no way. So, yeah. And I mean, I think that, that that's a powerful question. I mean, that, you know, do, do you think that those black officers would have felt the freedom in the same level of impunity? But make no mistake, just because those officers were black does not mean that racism didn't play a huge part in the beating and the killing of Tyree Nichols. Yes. I mean, so th- what, what we've seen, and this is not, this is experience on the ground, but then science supports this, all data supports this. The greatest determinant of who's the victim of police abuse is not the race of the officer, but the race of the person who's been victimized by the police. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't changed over time. So race and social status of the victim, by far the most important determinant of who gets beat by the police, who gets killed by the police. And so it's great. And I think it's really powerful. And I'm, I'm glad to report that, um, at least in Chicago, in part as a result of the consent decree and really as a part of, I think, people speaking up and increase scrutiny, public scrutiny of the police, things that we help to do by making also um, information about every police misconduct complaint actually accessible to the people so where people can use it. So when police officers actually know they're being watched, it does make a difference in terms of reducing the amount of brutality that we've seen in Chicago, but we're still seeing way too much, Not even though there's video. And even though there's a consent decree, and again, the one thing that has not changed um, is who are the people who are being abused? Well, and, and to just think about how deep that culture runs, the fact that those officers and others on a regular basis here in Chicago and elsewhere would continue to engage in that contact, conduct knowing that they're being filmed, they know they have body cameras. Oh, sometimes they'll turn them off. Uh, they'll at least have no sound or something. But in this case, you know, they were being filmed and they knew it. Um, the cops who killed George Floyd knew they were on camera. That's the smirk that you just can't get out of your head um, watching. They looked right at the camera and said, just try and stop me because they knew you couldn't. And I think some of that is um, these militarized um uh, what would you call it, teams, to mm-hmm. use the word incorrectly probably, um, within the police. They called um, the Scorpion unit that was disbanded yeah. immediately, um, which we were glad to see. You wrote, uh, when you uh, worked with the folks in Stateway Gardens, you wrote about the Skullcap crew, which right. sounded like an even more horrific version. Uh, and, of course, Burge's um, team that... Uh, you know, beat indiscriminately yep. to get people's confessions. Do you do you know or think that we still have those kinds of militarized units in the Chicago Police Department? 
Yeah. Um, and the, those specialized militarized units epitomize all that needs to change about police culture. And departments, just like you said, give them these bad A names like the Scorpion Unit, Crash yeah. in L.A., the Oakland Riders, Special Operations in Chicago. True. Um, and what's interesting in Chicago, the, the latest iteration of the latest iteration of that is actually has been given a flowery name called the Community Safety Team. Well, and and it's scary, right? Yeah. Um, so it sounds like a, a community help team, but um, just um, you know, same kind of unit, but with some lipstick on. And these are seen within not just in Chicago, but around in urban policing as the most elite units. It's where the quote unquote real police want to go, and the culture that you're talking about, kind of a macho boy, macho boy culture, like mm-hmm. the TV and the movies. You go out there, you get the bad guys, we do whatever's necessary. People may not want to see this, but, you know, we do what we got to do. The mm-hmm. officers are still, so back to the culture, are taught to be aggressive, taught that, you, and the only way that they keep the job is if they continue to lay hands on people, and I'm talking about lots of people. It's generating what police mm-hmm. bosses call activity, which means actually lots of stops, searches, arrests, seizures, mass incarceration of real human beings, people, and targeting black and brown people in particular. And those units then, back to kind of what you just were talking about, um, impunity. Mm-hmm. Are, you know, it doesn't matter that there's video. Um, given free reign, roam the city, go to the so-called hot spots, go to the quote-unquote most violent areas of the city in order to lay your hands on people, order to be aggressive, order to arrest people, order to, to mm-hmm. make, you know, to you get what you see. And, and with then no accountability to the communities that they're policing and that feeling, just as you said, that we're above the law. And just like in Memphis, um, what it also means in terms of culture is that you punish any disrespect. Police don't tolerate it. If you run, you're going to get a tune up. You cut your eyes at me. You don't move fast enough. When I tell you to do something, we're going to teach you a lesson. And this emboldens that whole, you know, that same, not just military, but it's kind of an us against them mentality where the them are the very people in the community and that police are taught to see and see everyone, and particularly young black and brown men, as threats and see the police as the biggest, baddest gang, that thin blue line that separates the so-called us, the police, from them. Um, They act like gangs. I think you hit it right there. change. And that, and I mean, so it's it's the bad idea that keeps recreating itself. That's built on fear that any time there's any time that people feel afraid or at all vulnerable to violence, the go-to by police leaders is, mm, we got to crack some skulls. Whatever it takes, we'll go in there, take over the corners, go after the guns, go after the carjackers, go after the kids. We'll call kids juvenile predators, mm-hmm. and. You know, and really easy, easy then to, you know, and, and, and it's like this, this recreates itself every time. And, and and we also know every time that it not only is so abusive and that it's inhumane, that it causes so many, so much harm to the community and generations of families locking people up who should never be locked up, killing people for no for no reason. Um, but it's also 
just, I mean, the bill of goods that were being sold is just a lie. It's ineffective. I mean, as, as you know. Right. Crime is um, up. Yeah. And, and if, 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 if just going around beating up black people and locking up black people, as many as possible, were effective in, in actually keeping people safe, the United States would be the safest country in the world. <laughs> and and the Chicago will be the safest city, that's for sure. Yeah. We have to we have to break for a commercial. We have a caller who wants to talk about police in the schools, which I think is consistent with what you just said uh, about pretending uh, what we pretend about the safety of police presence. And I want to hear what you have to say and what she has to say after this. WCPT eight twenty Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. We're talking about police accountability and the culture of police here in the police department here in Chicago and elsewhere, but focusing on Chicago with uh, professor and attorney Greg Futterman, director of the Civil Rights and Police Accountability Project at the U of C. We have a caller I want to bring in. Jennifer is calling from Elgin, uh, who has a question about putting police in the schools. Jennifer, are you there? Thanks for waiting. Oh. I'm here, but uh, my question wasn't really about uh, police in schools. It was about this situation in Memphis and those five black uh, police officers. I have a feeling that if, uh, like you said, if the uh, party had been uh, white, Asian, uh, Hispanic, or Native American, uh, they wouldn't have beat him so severely, almost killing him. Uh, Killing him, ultimately. Those five black police officers have a lowest self-esteem level of themselves, and they have been uh, unknowingly enticed into thinking that uh, they can get away with the members of their own race, and they can beat somebody to death, and uh, they won't have to account for it. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but um, I believe the esteem level of blacks in America is very, very low, and that might be part of the problem. Well, that's an interesting point, and I think it relates to a question about training, because I... I have seen periodically the police department will do a press event when they have a new new recruits, right? Um, and they'll call the media in to watch the hand-to-hand combat training and um, f- firing range training and um, all the aggressive training. And I and I always wonder why aren't we watching them get training on working on mental health issues? Why aren't we watching them get training on reconciliation and um, diffusing situations? We only see them as militarized folk, uh, militarized uh, units, and that's what they're being rewarded for. And that's where I think Jennifer, their self esteem must come from. Craig, what do you think about that theory? Yeah, well, um, I'm I'm not a psychologist, and 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 uh, and I and I, but I'll just say, you know, I strongly dis- disagree with that. Um, racism is powerful, um, and um, and that it, it is no less um, 
a matter of racism just because, again, the perpetrators no. and those who committed these acts um, were black. And if you look also, even when it comes to issues like unconscious racism, because this is even across race, who are we, and particularly in police officers have been studied, who are police officers most likely to see as threats? And that and that cuts across race of race of the police officer. Oh, yes. And we're all socialized to see young black brown folks. And often the darker the skin, the greater the threat. That's what psychology research has 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 taught us. Um, but your point also, though, um, both about both about training, because just simply more training um, and training away racism. That's that, that's quite, 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 quite a task. And it has to also first begin with the acknowledgement that it exists and it exists strongly within the Chicago Police Department in ways that have played out that have done so, so, so much, much harm. But what I was about to say uh, to your point about both training and policy is that one of the things that came out as a result of the consent decree that I was a part of was called a community use of force working group. And exactly what you said, Marge, that we wound up making a series of recommendations that fundamentally, if, if actually implemented, that transform the way in which police engage people on the ground, interact with folks, and heavily restricts when, if ever, they can use violence and seeing violence, police force as always a measure of last resort and teaching and preaching de-escalation and debunking the myth of the quote-unquote split-second decisions, which are rarely, if ever, necessary, but almost always caused by unreasonable and violent shoot first, think later decisions that mm-hmm. then create the need for quick action. And so we are in the, so one of the positives but unfinished business is that um, we had some success in fundamentally, and there's still a long way to go and there are problems with the policy, but fundamentally changing some of Chicago police policy around violence in ways that in theory are supposed to prioritize the sanctity of all human life. And that, and in doing so, meaning that again, force as a last, last resort. And when using force, only, only the least amount of force necessary under the circumstances. But the gap between this policy now that um, we've succeeded in creating versus um, what exists on paper versus what exists on the ground and how officers are being trained. And what I'm still seeing, unfortunately, even in training itself, are some of the same messages, the us against them mentality. Mm -hmm. The police, not all lives matter. And it's funny that, you know, police are all lives matter, but I'm not seeing in police training that, quote, unquote, all lives matter. What I'm seeing in police training is police lives matter the most. And it's all about police officers getting home safety, not about the lives and the respect for people in the community. And so training matters. Um, but, Lord, and to your point about, like, mental health training and all the like, I mean, the real question is, why are police, um, why are police the ones who are the first layer of response and, and the response being force 
in prison, handcuffs, because that's what the powers the police, the police have when we're talking about issues like mental illness or, say, substance abuse, um, mm-hmm. or even just the vast majority of um, interpersonal conflict. And, you know, uh, so much harm could be avoided and so much violence could be reduced and, and addressed far more effectively um, by not having police do all these things that they are nowhere close designed to do. And the funny thing is what police are best designed to do, which is supposed to be investigate crime, is the area in policing, which we've seen being the least supported and least funded, to actually doing work to investigate when an incident of violence occurs. But instead, we're investing in these like so-called scorpion teams that are busting heads, alienating entire communities, committing brutality, costing people and millions, tens of millions of dollars a year in civil rights li- in civil rights liability, and actually undermining the ability of police to actually investigate crime, because if you're going to be an effective investigator, guess what? People are going to have to believe, I can actually trust you. And if you're wearing that same uniform as the person who's shaking down my neighbor, and then also lying about the abuse, despite the existence of even video and hiding and covering up, guess who's the last person I'm going to trust to speak with if I have a problem um, or if I feel vulnerable um, <laughs> in, 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 in a violent investigation? And are the police going to are the police going to protect me or maybe actually put me at greater risk? You've come back to where we began. Uh, the system is not broken. It's working exactly as intended. You've generated 10 more questions uh, that we don't have time for. Um, but your thoughtful responses and information, I think, uh, mean that we'll just have to have you back uh, at the very next opportunity. Thank you so much uh, for your thoughtful informative conversation. We've been talking to Craig Futterman of the University of Chicago. We will leave this topic and move on to one that is not unrelated, which is the CTA, where a lot of these police issues are also uh, relevant. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Thank you so much for joining me, and we're moving on. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. Break a leg. Have a good show. It's a busy afternoon, and we're kind of racing through topics today because there's so much to talk about. And uh, not unrelated to the last hour we spent talking about uh, police accountability and public safety, we want to talk now about the CTA. These are the two uh, two of the major issues that have been front and center in the mayoral uh, debates and uh, race uh, that's before us. And I think if you consider uh, any conversation about CTA, crime on the CTA uh, is the segue. I should have probably had Professor Fetterman stay with us to talk about CTA crime. But I did not because we have some transit experts lined up to talk to us now. Um, There are a lot of problems with the CTA, a lot of things that need to be improved. But fundamentally, 
It's not a comfortable, fun, safe feeling ride anymore. And there are a lot of things that could be done from a perspective of transit experts to improve the functionality of CTA and the basic service that so many rely on to get where they need to go. Uh, so we're going to start our conversation with Obai Reed. He's the president and CEO of Equiticity, racial, the racial equity movement, which is an organization that uh, is focused uh, not only on uh, transit, but equity in uh, a, a, a lot of areas, but finds transit and transit equity fundamental uh, to uh, our ability to have full mobility in the city and do our jobs, go to school, do the things that help our families and communities thrive. Uh, too many, uh, so many, not too many, but so many are relying on transit for that. So, Obaye, I want to thank you for joining me, and I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing more uh, from you about transit. Welcome. Thank you, Marge. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation together. Well, I don't. Uh, so we we just talked a lot about crime, and I don't want to make this uh, all about crime um, on the CTA. But I think it's the starting point where people don't feel safe on the buses and trains. What do you think uh, is the nature of that problem? Is it getting is it rightfully centered by the mayoral candidates, or are they making more out of it than they should? No, it's, it's rightfully centered. Our mobility justice in Chicago research, where we did a series of focus groups with black and brown people who are low to moderate income and living on the south and west sides, found our deep concerns around violence to the extent that those concerns shape our mode choice. In our neighborhoods, people feel compelled to own a car, even when it's a significant part of their, it, it, you know, the, owning a car requires a significant part of their income because they don't feel safe driving. I mean, they don't feel safe using transit. They don't feel safe walking. They don't feel safe biking in our neighborhoods. And it's not just interpersonal violence we're concerned about. We're deeply concerned about interpersonal violence. We're also concerned about vehicular violence and um uh, 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 police violence. We're concerned about all three types of violence. And with regards to transit, as this conversation is about with us now, we are deeply concerned about being able to use transit and be safe. We're concerned about being safe while we're using transit. We're also concerned about being safe when we're getting to transit and when we're getting off transit and we have to walk home at night in the dark. So there's deep, deep concerns about violence, and we need to address those. Do you think, um, as Paul Vallis has suggested, take away the private security officers that are patrolling platforms, use that money to hire more sworn officers, bring more officers out of retirement for that? What do you think about that direction? I do not believe a police strategy is what's needed here. What we need to focus on is the systemic and structural causes of violence. When we only address symptoms, we're going to be chasing ourselves for decades. We'll be here 100 years from now having the same conversation. There are 
structural inequities within our society that are causing violence. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have to ignore violence that's taking place today. There's ways to address that without the, the harms of a police strategy. What we need is things like transit ambassadors mm-hmm. who are on, on buses, on trains, addressing mental health crises, addressing uh, the homeless population who, who, who may in some cases be interested in, uh, you know, housing or uh, temporary services to address their homelessness. The idea that police is the answer has failed us. It's failed us. Let's, let's look at what's in the news today. Yeah. Police failed a gentleman in Memphis. Recently, police failed a gentleman in L.A. Police in our city has failed people. There's other strategies to reduce, reduce crime, and we must focus on the systemic causes of violence as, as well. Makes sense to me, of course. Um, and I, I, I think we should talk about the ambassadors for a minute because a lot of folks will think right away about the mostly young people who are on platforms given a probably minimum wage. I don't know for sure, but they're not. Um, they're hourly workers with yellow vests who uh, create a presence on the platform. In my experience, they're usually looking at their phones. I don't think they get a lot of training. They get none of the training in the areas you're talking about um, in terms of working uh, with folks who have mental illness issues or um or any of the root causes that are there. But there are ambassador programs that are more successful. What's the difference? Yeah, so the the, the type of people I'm recommending that we hire um, are people who come with a, a real specific skill set. They understand how to de-escalate a situation. You know, what we saw in Memphis was a group of police officers who had either no training, didn't care, or didn't know how to de-escalate. Mm-hmm. They escalated. We we need people who are, who are trained to de-escalate. We also need people who are trained mental health providers who who know how to you know work with someone who may be having a mental health crisis. We need people who understand how to work with the homeless population. That you know hiring teenagers who don't have that training is is it, it, ineffective. Right. We need to resource a group like what we're advocating for ambassadors who have the training it it costs i mean you know that's the nature of our society should we want to serve those who are marginalized we have to put the resources in place to ensure that they're being served equitably and that's what we're advocating for right and i think that ambassador idea is a terrific one we'd certainly like to see it to see it in place in a meaningful way uh which is not what we have right now. I think um, uh, I think a lot of the candidates have skimmed over some of the more serious proposals. Uh, do you, is there a candidate for mayor who you think, I'm not asking you for an endorsement, but is there a candidate who you think has come out with um, some meaningful reflections on how to improve CTA? Well, I, you know, I'm not intimately familiar with uh, all of the candidates' transportation and specifically transit platforms. Um, I, w- my read on some of the candidates is that many are committed 
to funding transit at the level that is needed. Um, I think some understand the harms of a police enforcement strategy. Unfortunately, some also um, feel like, you know, increased police enforcement on transit is, is the right strategy, which we disagree with. Um, I, I don't want to I don't want to call any names here because I, I need to spend some more time uh, better understanding all of their uh, positions with regards to transit and, and transportation more broadly. However, you know, there's a, there's a few folks that I, I feel like has uh, potential to be, be mayor and get transit right in our city. Let me throw out an idea that. Uh, strikes me as not one of the best and see what you think of it. Willie Wilson continually says uh, he'd lower fares, maybe even make CTA free, that if you'd increase ridership, uh, if you lower fares, people will come back, you'll increase ridership, then you'll have the revenue to make the improvements you need. That um, I don't think that's worked in other cities, and I think uh, even the lower senior fares that we have in place now are sort of a a hammer approach when a more scalpel, oh, I'm mixing my metaphors, aren't I? But I think, and not a machete, but a scalpel is what's needed here. I think you want to cut the population that needs it most, give them the support, and not have a blanket fare. Now, how you would give low fares by income level, I don't know how that would happen. It feels like the low fare idea is is more of a distraction to me. What do you think? Um, we we may part ways on this issue as much as I how would. How would you do it is my question. I'm not sure about the implementation. What I will say is that um, making transit free is a great strategy. Um, you know, making it free by itself may not solve all of the problems because, again, there's some, you know, structural uh, barriers that are causing people not to ride uh, transit. However, I do feel like free transit will help. And we do we do need more people using transit. We need transit to feel more vibrant. You know, when you're on a mm-hmm. train car and you're the only person there <laughs> and there's somebody with some ill intent, you know, that's that's a, that's a tough situation to be in. When you're on a, on a train car and it's a lot of people, and you know, people are going to work. People are, you know, going home and going, running errands. That makes for a vibrant space where mm-hmm. people who have ill intent may think twice about doing something uh, criminal. Um, so I like the idea of free transit. Now, short of free transit, the other policy that we should be considering, to your point, is a pro- progressive fare structure. Those who make less pay less for transit. Those who make more pay more for transit. So that's my alternative to mm-hmm. transit being free. Should that not should that not be a policy that we're able to move forward? We should certainly be working towards a progressive fare structure for transit. Well that's the policy it's harder to harder implement. So maybe free transit is the way to go. And frankly, you ride the trains in New York and they're packed. They're packed with men going to work in suits. They're packed with uh people all dressed up for a formal evening out. Um we don't we don't have uh that kind of broad-based ridership and if we did, I think that alone could make it safer. So I think we're more on the same page uh, after all. We're going to take a quick break and I'm going to come back to continue the conversation. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. 
Joan Esposito. Live, Live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. We're talking with Obai Reed of the Equiticity Project, the Racial Equiticity, Racial Equity Movement is the name of the organization. I want to get it right. And uh, mobility justice is a phrase you used at the beginning. And I think that's what we're talking about here in this last uh, conversation. So making fares free, progressive fares make a lot of sense. People make more, can pay more. But implementing that is where I think we get hung up because, you, I don't know, you get people's tax returns or whatever. But making fares free put the people who need it first. Um, And there's good reason to do that, I guess. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, there are poor people in our city who can't afford transit. That's right. There are there are young people who jump a turnstile or get on the back of the bus because they can't afford transit. You know, why are we burdening marginalized people in this way? At the very least, transit should be free for poor people. And I agree with you that it would be a lot easier to implement should we make it free for everybody. I support that strategy. Yeah, it makes sense. I think I got hung up on the idea of, uh, you know, making it free for people who could afford it. But it, but that stops us from making it free for the people who need it to be. And that's thinking backwards. Yeah, and I agree with you. You know, I'm, I'm not advocating that people who can afford it shouldn't pay. However... Should the should it be easier to pass the policy, and should it be easier to implement when it's free for everybody? That's a policy I support. Well, I yeah, I you've talked you you've talked uh, sensibly about it. That's for sure, and I would agree with you. And I and I think the presence there's something powerful in what you said also about just increasing the presence of people, making a larger, more diverse community on the train or bus or whatever it happens to be. Um, Now, another problem, though, is reliability. You could make it free, but if the buses don't run on time and they're skipping, um, there's uh, the website, I think, or, or that's following the blue line, and they find how many uh, runs are not fulfilled because they don't have staff what what do you think about so you make it free is that enough you make it free will they come or is there still uh, another priority some other uh, things that have to be fixed first yeah there are a lot of priorities that have to be fixed um we have to find a way for people to feel safe on transit and you know more people using transit will help ambassadors will help Better lighting at the uh, train stations will help. More mm-hmm. staff, you know, moving around the platforms um, on the on the train cars will help. Um, we have to uh, fix the spatial mismatch in our region. This is the um, the disconnect between where the job seekers are and where the job centers are. Another element of our research uh, called Mobility Justice in Chicago, and that research is available on our website, found that that a uh, significant percentage of people who we uh, uh, interviewed in those focus groups said transit 
and transportation in general, it wasn't just limited to transit. However, transit was, you could imagine, a significant part of this discussion. Um, transit and transportation contributed to people um, having a hard time getting and or keeping a job. So transit is not a good option for people to get to some of the uh, job centers. You know, it may be in the suburbs or, you know, pretty far away from where people live. It could be the buses don't run during an overnight shift or they could get pretty close, but then it's a long walk. There's no connection. Or when there is a connection, it means they have to get off the bus and wait an hour for the next bus. There's a lot There's a lot happening that's making this spatial mismatch a huge barrier for people to use transit. And for people who want a job, they want to go make money, they want to support their family, and they recognize transit is not an option, we are forcing them to go and buy a car. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are requiring them to make that investment, even when they don't have the income to support it, to make that investment in, in, in buying a car. And that's not that's not a that, that, that's not what uh, that's not how an equitable uh, city should operate. So we need to fix that. And a number of other problems like, you know, I, I would imagine one area of of, of um one solution that we should explore is investing in staff. Why are people not taking these jobs or not showing showing up to work? That that signals to me that there's an investment we need to make in people who are uh, who are driving the buses, running the trains, the mechanics, et cetera, to ensure that we have the uh, the staff there to support the transit needs of us of our residents. Yeah. I think the first point you made um, has to do with the coordination or lack of coordination between the CTA and PACE and METRA. Um, And that's been going on for years. I I don't know if there have been any improvements lately, but it's a longstanding problem that the schedules need to be coordinated. If the CTA is going to take you to the edge uh, of its route and PACE picks you up, you can't wait an hour for the bus. That's right. Yeah, I, you know that that to me seems like a, a really easy fix. Seems you know? like it, right? The head of <laughs> the head of RTA, the head of space, the head of CTA, did to get on a call and say, "Let's let's get this done." I don't know why why that's still a challenge, especially when you have a mayor and a governor who uh, commits to racial equity. Right. When that, when that commitment is to racial equity, you find a way to serve mar- racially marginalized people and coordinating schedules is the least we should be doing. And that's an ongoing issue. I mean, I, I, I do believe there's been some improvement, but I think that as jobs shift, that has to be constantly evaluated. And what's the community input on that process so that um, they're hearing from the folks who need the transportation and responding to the shifts in uh, routes as the people's jobs are shifting I don't know that yeah. there is that kind of system set up, but I think there should be. Agreed. You know, our, our advocacy position here is that uh, we want community ownership of the transportation planning processes in our neighborhoods. That means community-based organizations, residents, are full partners at the table, envisioning, planning, budgeting, 
um, that needs to, to to address the needs that we have in our neighborhoods, and, and we don't leave it to uh, bureaucrats and uh, policymakers to do it for us. We want to own that planning process, and when we own it, we're more confident that those services will be impactful in our neighborhoods. Well, we started uh, our first hour of the show this afternoon talking about the new police district councils, maybe transportation councils. We have local school councils. Maybe that's the next thing to advocate for. Let's think about that while we take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back to continue our conversation. Listen to the Tom Hartman Radio Program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. We've been talking with Obaye Reed from the organization Equiticity, which if you don't know about this group, look them up on the Internet, follow them on Twitter. And we've had some exchanges already today. It's a great organization which has a vision uh, that our city could be a place where racial equity is fully integrated at the policy and legislative levels into every function, department, budget, and resource associated with city operation services and programs. What there? It's a space. Lots of groups work in individual departments or budgets or causes, but this kind of overall commitment to racial equity does set you apart. And we have only a couple more minutes, but I don't want to let you go uh, without asking you about the organization and this broad mission. Sure. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to to, to, uh, join you here. I've enjoyed this conversation and look forward to more in the future. Indeed. Um, Equiticity. Equiticity is a racial equity movement operationalizing racial equity by harnessing our collective power um, through research, advocacy, programs, community mobility rituals, and social enterprises to improve the lives of black, brown, and indigenous people in our society. We are a national organization. However, the vast majority of our work is focused on Chicago, and the vast majority of the work we do in Chicago is focused on the North Lawndale neighborhood on the west side of Chicago. We are agnostic with respect to sector and or policy area. However, as a still evolving, growing organization with limited resources and limited capacity, the sectors we are the most active on our transportation and environmental justice. Those are great places to start. You're also co-chair of the Transportation Equity Network, um, which was started by the Metropolitan Planning Council, which is how I was connected to you. So you're out there um, working on the ground and in coalition with a lot of important community leaders. And um, Yes. It's a critical issue uh, in terms of transit and everything else. So um, I want to thank you for joining me. I wish we had more time, but you know that means we'll just have to come back. I look forward to it anytime. Thanks. Thank you. Happy to happy to have the conversation. We uh, are going to continue to talk about transit with John Greenfield, who is the editor of Streets Blog. Streets blog. He's also uh, familiar, I'm sure, to our audience because uh, he's been on here with Joan, I I know, many times. Uh, Streets blog uh, is the place to go to find out about. 
transportation issues, whether you're looking at uh, uh, bike safety, pedestrian safety, transit riders. This is a wide-ranging daily news source, streetsblog.com, where you can plug into the latest information on the efforts to make our streets more livable. And uh, bus lanes, um, converting parking strips uh, to other uses, all these things uh, have uh, Streets Blog folks have been involved in and kind of led the conversation on it. So I'm happy to have John Greenfield here to talk with us. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me, Marge. Uh, you could be on for another hour, but we don't have another hour for the topic. So let's dive right into it, because um, I know that you have said before that the problems facing the CTA are not unique to our city's transit system. Um, and uh, there are some successful uh best practices that are happening elsewhere. You and I talked before about ambassadors, which we've talked about uh, on the air here with Obaib uh, for a few minutes. So I want to ask you, what do we do to properly staff the CTA? Um, They're understaffed uh, by hundreds of bus drivers, uh, train train conductors as well, and um, the routes as a result. We're not getting as many buses and trains to pick up people who are needed. What do you do about that exactly? Yeah, staffing is basically the the most important piece of the puzzle for getting the CTA back the way we want it mm-hmm. to be, you know, to have a reliable, safe, and pleasant CTA system. And the issue is that, as you said, uh, the CTA is down about 100 rail operators and about 600 bus drivers, even though they've been doing some aggressive recruitment efforts. So uh, we got to figure out how to get the CTA up to full strength as soon as possible. Because as it stands, there are, um, you know, the scheduled service when, when the buses and trains are supposed to show up, uh, the agency has not been able to fulfill all the scheduled runs. So that means often when you look at a transit tracker screen or a navigation app and it tells you a bus or a train is going to be arriving, um, it doesn't actually show up at the appointed time. It disappears off the screen before right. it gets there. And that's known as a ghost bus or a ghost train. And that's because there was no one to, to staff the run. Mm, and, uh, that explains my experience of- yesterday. Thank you very much. <laughs> What happened? That was it. The, you know, the train's coming in seven minutes, and it's, you know, 12 minutes, and then suddenly it's coming in three more minutes, and, yeah, it didn't show up. I had it on buses, too, uh, this week, where you see it on the app, and it's coming, and then it doesn't come, and suddenly you're not getting another bus for 10 minutes. Yeah, that's kind of an insult to injury situation when when you think a run is coming, but it never shows up. Right, especially in this weather. So, I mean, basically, we are experiencing a vicious cycle. We are in danger of going into the dreaded transit death spiral. Service is bad because there's not enough people to to run the buses and trains. Um, You know, that's due to issues during the pandemic, things like people retiring early or um, quitting their jobs, trouble recruiting workers because of things like, um, you know, fear of exposure to COVID, 
Mm-hmm. There was an increase in assaults on CTA workers during COVID when uh, a lot of people were having mental health challenges or economic challenges. Um, and, uh, you know, the fewer workers there are, the harder the job becomes. And it's just the, the you know, the uh, zeitgeist right now of the great resignation. Um, all kinds of fields, especially the transportation field, are having trouble finding employees. So, uh, yeah, so when there's bad service, when there's long waits for trains and buses, fewer people ride the train. Um, that means less revenue to the CTA. That means fewer eyes in the cars, you know, people, bystanders to help deter people from uh, breaking rules like smoking or littering um, or to deter crimes. We've seen a spike in crime on the CTA with the current crime, violent crime rate is about twice what it was before the pandemic. Um, so on the positive side, we can we can help fix those problems and create a virtuous cycle by getting CTA staffing up to full strength. Um, the CTA has been doing a lot of hiring fairs. Um, they did hire about 70 rail operators last year and 420 bus operators. Um, but, you know, if we really want to get hiring, if we really want to speed up hiring, the thing to do is make CTA jobs as appealing as possible. Um, the CTA has already, you know, they've raised the wages for employees. Uh, the starting wage for bus drivers and rail operators will be about 30 bucks an hour this this uh, year. So that at full time, that comes out to about $60,000 a year, which is a fairly middle class income. Um, but, you know, it wouldn't hurt to raise that even more. And uh, also, we have to make sure that employees are satisfied with how scheduling works, um, that they feel like they're safe, you know, that they're not going to get assaulted on their runs, um, and uh, give them more flexibility. So basically, you know, these are really important, essential jobs, running the buses and trains. And it's really important to the future of Chicago that we have a, a strong, safe and pleasant transit system. So we should do whatever it takes to make people want to work at CTA and want to stay at their jobs at CTA. That'll make it feel safer as well, don't you think? Yeah. So, you know, definitely no one wants to be hanging out on a platform or on a a corner of a street at a bus station waiting for their run longer than they need to. So, uh, you know, this also plays into addressing Chicago's public safety challenges. And and what do you think about, we talked in our first hour about police uh, and uh, the lack of training for dealing with mental illness. Is, isn't this an issue, too, for CTA employees? Uh, people have talked, even when I think you and I had a little Twitter exchange this morning where someone said, yeah, but there's a man sitting across from me in the train with obvious mental, issue, mental illness issues and making people feel unsafe. Um, is the CTA staff prepared for that? Should they be? Or is that the role for ambassadors or others? How do you address that with staffing? Well, I mean, it would certainly be great if all CTA employees who, who deal with the public were to have training in de-escalation, um, anti-bias training, just, you know, how to, when, when you encounter challenging people, um, you know, people with mental health issues or, uh, you know, people who are being problematic on trains or buses, like what's, what's the best way to deal with that situation? Um, but on the other hand, like, that's not what we're hiring them for. Right. We're, we're hiring them to drive buses and, and, uh, run trains. We're not hiring them to be social workers or cops. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, the, the, the transit ambassador program that's been happening in some peer systems around the country seems to be a good, a good way forward. Um, probably the best practice or the one that's been around the longest at this point is uh, at the San Francisco Bay Area's BART system, where uh, I think the program is about two years old. It's run by the Transit Police Department. Unlike Chicago, they have a, an in-house police department at BART. Mm-hmm. And uh, so from what I can tell, these are well-trained people. Um, they're wearing special uniforms. Um, you know, unlike Chicago's unarmed security guards in the, in the system, uh, last March there was a new $70 million contract for unarmed security um, that largely consists of, of young people um, from private firms wearing yellow vests. And uh, some of those people have told uh, news outlets they don't feel very prepared for the job. I'm getting the sense they're paid mostly near minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Um, they mostly kind of hang out in groups, large groups that don't seem like the most efficient way to patrol the system. And so it seems like it might be more effective to have people traveling in pairs who, um, you know, give off sort of more of a professional aura um, who have been trained in um, de-escalation and, um, anti-bias training. I know at BART, they've also teamed up with having social workers come on trains and um, try to help out people who are struggling with mental illness or homelessness or addiction issues, um, which, of course, is a big thing on the CTA. We've got a lot of people who are taking shelter in the CTA for lack of better options. So uh, uh, transit ambassadors, there are also similar programs in L.A. and Boston, so it seems like this is kind of a good middle ground between armed cops. You know, that raises a lot of issues. And people like uh, Chicago security guards who just don't seem very well prepared for the job. I mean, not through the fault of their own, but it just seems like the program is not managed particularly well. Uh, in Chicago, we also spent another $31 million on canine units. Those are pairs of unarmed security guards um, with guard dogs, usually German shepherds. And it's sort of questionable what the purpose of those is. Um, last weekend, I was riding the blue line late at night, made a transfer Jackson to the red line. And uh, I, I came upon some canine guards, and I asked one of the guys, like, so what exactly are the rules? Like, are you allowed to unleash the dogs on suspects? Are you allowed to unmuzzle the dogs? Um, I had asked this from the CTA uh, before I did a Freedom of Information Act request. And they, they wouldn't answer them. They just said it was a security issue. They couldn't tell me how the programs run. But the guard said, like, they, they can't unleash the dogs and they can't unmuzzle the dogs unless the guard's life is in danger. I mean, I'm not saying mm. that I would want dogs sicked on people who jump turnstiles or do other, like, nonviolent violations. Um, but it does raise the question, you know, like, what exactly are we spending $31 million in taxpayer money for? Um, we'll, we'll have something about that issue on Streets Blog uh, in the near future. Ah, but you I'm heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a really good point. And uh, we have to take a quick break, but we have somebody on the line. If you can hold down a little longer, Jerry, a former union president for CTA, since we're talking about all these staffing issues, uh, we'll find out what he has to say after a quick break. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Joan Esposito. 
Live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Alperin. We're talking about how to save the CTA, how to make it the viable, equitable transit service that uh, we need in communities across the city. Talking to John Greenfield, editor of the Streets Blog, Chicago version, uh, the go-to for all things transit. And I want to bring into the conversation, we've had a caller waiting patiently for us, Jerry from Richardson Park, a former union president for the CTA. Bus or train, Jerry? Train. Train. All right. So we've been talking about some ways to make these jobs more appealing. What do you think ought to be done to uh, increase staffing and attract more people to work for the CTA? Of course, uh, the the pay raise, I mean, pay should be increased. But um, there's a lot that can be done. And I'm going to make it as short as I can. All right. Uh, There's a lot that can be done. I know that uh, I hear this. Every time that there's a um, you know election coming up or something like that, nothing's done. I, I go back to when I was president and we ran into the same situations, and I, I brought in actuaries to go in because they said that they didn't have enough money to do the things that they wanted to do. And uh, I brought in, and I would suggest that uh, your guests take a look at this. Uh, I brought in actuaries to go in and find out exactly how much money they had and if they were lying or not. And they did. We went in, found out, and, and this is this is what was amazing. We found out, we did a study on the riders in the state of Illinois, and we found out that CTA carry 88% of the riders in the state of Illinois, but they only get 50% of the funding. Mm. And uh, you used to have buses coming, coming through with, people hanging all off, you know, CTA buses. Yeah. Then you had pace buses coming through with only three or four people on it. Take a look and see what's going on in, in that area right there. Mm. And you can get some things done. Get some things done because you're right, CTA is the bloodline uh, of Chicago. But people, the, the workers, uh, and the people that actually ride CTA are treated like slums. You know, and there's a lot that you can do. But you just people just have to go in and do that. Took it upon myself to to got got uh, a company to go in and do that and work with. We got we had to work with uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats at that time. Well, one, one young one young uh, Democrat that did a lot to help was a young guy by the name of uh, Barack Obama. <laughs> Not long enough to get too much done at the state level, but he was active yeah. when he was there. <laughs> yeah, work with uh, uh, people like um, uh, Valerie Jarrett, mm-hmm. who uh, I got her to commit, and she did. And I worked with uh, at that time. I think with George, yeah, George, uh, George Ryan. Mm-hmm. Brought in two point one billion dollars to the CTA, but. That was, you know, that was for capital. But we're talking about money that um, where people can get raises and stuff like that. Go in and find out exactly where that money is because some of the things that they have are dilapidated. When I was in, we had a guy in there by the name of Cruzy, and he and I worked. Mm-hmm. He used to hit the CTA. Yeah, worked together. He wasn't a very pleasant guy to work with, but he was. We went in there and worked together. <laughs> Frank and Crazy. We mm-hmm. almost got the we almost got the uh, the train, the Dan Ryan line to go all the way to 130th. 
streak. That was back then. But think about how long that's been, and it hasn't happened yet. You know, those type oh. things need to be done. Yeah, and yeah. I applaud these young men. I applaud these young men and women for what they're doing with their um, companies that they're doing. So. Well, that's a. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for your comments. I think that perspective about state funding is a critical one. I know. Speaking of other former city uh, leaders, uh, Forrest Claypool was able to get rebalanced the state funding for the Chicago Public Schools, which saved them from bankruptcy, and that uh, would seem to be a, a worthwhile thing to pursue for the CTA too. What do you think, John? Yeah, I think Mr. Williams raised some some really good points um, that we need to rethink the funding formula for the CTA that uh, I believe as it stands now by state law, the CTA is required to come up with half of its operating funds. So that means, um, you know, money from fare box revenue and also other revenue streams like advertising Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, ridership really plummeted during the pandemic um, even now, we're only at about 50% of the ridership we had um, in 2019. And that's, uh, you know, a lot of that's due to people are still working remotely. They haven't completely come back downtown to work. Um, so it's really tough for the CTA to make that 50% level. And, uh, you know, other other peer systems don't have to come up with that much money for their operating funds. Operating funds means like paying the drivers and, and things right. like that. So um, we should look into, you know, if we can get the state to change the law so that the CTA isn't required to make up half of its operating funds. Um, You know, larger amount of transportation funding should be going to the CTA instead of road projects. We should be subsidizing the kind of transportation that we want to have. You know, transit helps prevent crashes, helps prevent traffic jams, makes the air cleaner, fights climate change, whereas driving does the opposite. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Governor Pritzker, he's he's been progressive on a lot of things, but his, his blind spot seems to be with uh, promoting driving. You know, he's proposed spending billions of dollars to, to widen Illinois expressways and interstates. So instead, we should be focusing funding on greener forms of transportation like the CTA. Makes um, sense. And, you know, it, one really important thing that's happening now is all the local transit agencies are facing this fiscal cliff. Um, obviously, since transit ridership plummeted, fare box revenue plummeted, um, it's been harder to pay the bills. And the CTA would have been in big trouble during the pandemic without federal COVID stimulus aid. Um, the current funding will run out in 2025 at the rate we're going. So uh, we need to come up with some way to, to fill the gap. So that's why we really need to get up on top of these funding issues and do everything we can to increase CTA ridership and make people feel more comfortable riding, encourage more people to come back downtown, um, which is why the, the staffing issue is so important. Right. And if this formula were changed, it seems to me now that this formula is the thing standing in the way of reducing fares or offering free fares, as we talked about with a boy, a boy Reed a little while ago. Um, and I think I see now if they have to come up 50% of their revenue, they have to have something from the fare box. But if that formula is switched at the state level, um, that could be a way to really boost ridership and especially among the people who can't afford 
uh, to take the CTA. We have one more caller that I want to try to fit in before we take this break. Um, Steve is calling from the Gold Coast, where I'm guessing you're reliant on bus transportation. Hi, Steve. Yes, I want to touch on a couple of issues. Uh, one, it's, it's a little bit unfair to compare what uh, we spend in terms of getting people from Plainfield to Naperville or you know, somewhere in Peoria to the outskirts of, of town versus downtown Chicago. Uh, so when we talk about funding, we need to realize that that's a fact. So, you know, you, the amount of money it takes to move somebody from uh, Chicago and State Street up to the Wrigleyville uh, exit for the L is a lot less than what it would take to move a comparable number of people in rural or suburban Illinois. So there, there's a reason why, in the same way that, you know, it, our post office is much more efficient in, in, in Chicago than it is in rural anywhere. So that's point one. Two, I, I think that part of the reason that, that there's uh, less support for mass transit, uh, the likes of what you're discussing, is that we have some sort of a pipe dream that we've sort of, you know, imbued in, in terms of our the general populace's idea about moving forward, that we're going to have clean, renewable energy. We're all going to be driving these carbon-free emissions vehicles. They're going to be smart cars. that aren't going to require any of us to touch the steering wheel. And that, by and large, will be for mass transit because that will solve all of our congestion issues, our need for uh, fossil fuels, all of these things. So, therefore, why invest in mass transit? That the technology just isn't there yet. It's not a realistic goal. So, unfortunately, I think we've been sold on this. So that's the future people envision in one in which you're still, you still have your own private car, but it's just something like an Uber that you would call, and it would pick you up and drop you off. You don't have to go to the inconvenience of going to a bus stop or a train station. And, again, I don't think that it's a realistic goal at this point, but that's what we've been sold on. That's an interesting comment. And, John, what I'm hearing in that comment is the idea that when we think about transportation, we're really thinking about it for people who can afford their own cars and minimizing the importance of mass transit, not only for the climate and the other issues that Steve just mentioned, but basically for the fundamental uh, needs that people have to get to work, to school, and to um, connect with their family and friends. If we think about transit that way, we would be pouring money into mass transit, wouldn't we? Right. I mean, Steve raised some really good points there, that in the United States, we just bend over backwards to not do the, the proven solutions to transportation problems that like, long ago in other countries mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, we, we get so excited about electric cars and um, about um, autonomous vehicles instead of creating good transit like has existed in pure cities around the world for, you know, so long that, uh, I, you know, a few years ago they were talking about, oh, we really need to start planning for when autonomous vehicles are going to take over, which should happen around 2023. And, you know, that just, that went nowhere. Like (laughs) there's nothing, there's nothing, we're nowhere near having safe autonomous vehicles. Um, Yeah. You know, you got guys like Elon Musk a few years ago was pushing the concept of the hyperloop, you know, basically a a tube that people could be shot through in capsules. He was he was for airport transportation, right? Yeah. To, to O'Hare and mm-hmm. Rahm Emanuel was taking him seriously, and um, you know, meanwhile, like countries in Europe and Asia have had high speed rail for for decades. Um, the United States is just starting to dip its toe in the water. Um, you know, China is an example. They, in a matter of years, they build out a vast high speed rail network, and. Uh, 
you know, in the United States, we just will do anything we can to avoid having to ride a train or bus when it's really the most practical, sustainable way to get around. Well, we have to change a lot of culture in that sense. And on the day that uh, Joe Biden is praising repairs to uh, longstanding problems on the East Coast train system, we could use some help here in the Midwest, too. We're running out of time. We have run out of time. But I want to thank you, John Greenfield, for joining us. You could follow him at streetsblog.com and uh, take a look at uh, his updates as he has promised more news is on its way. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'll be back to talk about a critical election coming up in just a couple weeks that you might not be thinking about. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. Break a leg. Have a good show. So we've been talking all afternoon with community activists, people who are active in um, police accountability, people in transit safety, mobility justice, equity, all kinds of areas. And we're about to uh, talk to another community activist who is, uh, you'd have a hard time finding someone more effective than this woman. But first, I'm going to tease you further by telling you the topic of the next hour is a super important election that's coming up at the end of February, making everyone nervous because it's going to for sure lead to a runoff, and we don't know who's going to end up in that runoff. I am not talking about the Chicago mayoral race. I'm talking about the February 21th general election across the border in Wisconsin, where voters will be choosing a justice for their state Supreme Court. If you pay any attention to politics across the border or national presidential politics, you know how important that Wisconsin Supreme Court is to all of us. And this race could be the one, if we all do the work and progressives turn out, this could be the one that turns the Wisconsin State Supreme Court progressive. It's nonpartisan election, so it won't be Democrats. I won't say blue, but it will give progressives the major- majority just in time for the 2024 election and all of the shenanigans that we know the state legislature will try to pull to reduce uh, voter uh, um, access, particularly among people of color and particularly in the cities. Uh, Milwaukee is target number one. And that brings us to our guest, Angela Lang. Angela is the executive director of Block BLOC, which stands for the Black Leaders Organizing for Communities. And I already told you she's a fabulous organizer, and I'm happy to have you with us. Welcome, Angela. Thank you so much for having me. Um, did I oversell this election? <laughs> no, not at all. I don't think um, anyone can overstate the um, both local and national implications of this race. So we have two progressives and two conservatives in the race, right? Yeah, yes, indeed. And uh, one of the conservatives is the guy we beat, and I say we because as part of the Indivisible Chicago phone bank operation, uh, we put in uh, thousands of calls to voters to help uh, knock a conservative uh, Daniel Kelly off the 
court and off the bench and yeah. put in a progressive, and that brought us one closer to having the majority, which uh, this race could do. What are the implications yeah. of that if, if we're yeah, able to put know, another progressive on? Yeah, it would flip the ideology of the court. You know, right now it's a 4-3 split, and it favors um, the conservative majority. And we've seen how that's impacted our state with things such as voting rights, um, access to Dropbox locations and getting rid of those. Um, gerrymandering um, and redistricting has gone in front of our court, um, obviously, in this last go-around. Um, trans rights activists or um, trans uh, mm-hmm. athletes being able to ha- have access to care um, that they need. A lot of these issues um, have gone in front of the the court. Have been uh, the court has been kind of in its orbit for a while around these issues. And another one that I don't think we can overstate enough that I think is um, one of the the biggest issues that people are thinking about is um, abortion. Right now in the state of Wisconsin, uh, we do have an archaic abortion ban on the books from like the 1800s. Um, so as soon as the Dobbs decision happened, um, it automatically made abortion illegal in the state of Wisconsin. Um, Our governor, our um, attorney general has been trying to challenge that uh, with the current makeup of the legislature um, being Republican dominated. We haven't really had a chance at that. So um, being able to get rid of that archaic abortion ban is also critically important, especially right now. Yeah, to all of us, you know, we're we're seeing a massive increase in uh, patient need here in Illinois because we at the moment are the blue island in the Midwest that provides yeah. these services and women are coming from all over the country uh, and certainly from Wisconsin um, to seek services here. And we would like to see Wisconsin also be a refuge for women seeking control over their own reproductive health and their own bodies and their choices. Um, One of the reasons that I am so impressed by the work that you do is because I know that you do it year round. You're not an election cycle organization. And I, uh, as you know, I'm working uh, on the board of Indivisible Chicago. And we as an election organization know well the challenges of working year round to maintain relationships with voters, to uh, be relevant to voters. So that when it's time to turn them out, they know you, they trust you, uh, and they vote with you. Um, Tell me about the work that you do uh, in an off-season, as we will be in again after this election. How do you do that? That takes a lot to sustain. It does, um, but it's actually part of the work that we look forward to the most, honestly. Um, it feels like we're always in the constant election grind, so we're always excited for the April to you know next February stretch. And so we have a team of what we call ambassadors. Um, the only way to really describe them is kind of canvassers on steroids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have roughly about 45 right now. We were able to keep on a bulk of our team from the November election. Um, and what they'll be doing after April is still being in the community, having conversations, starting conversations with the question, what does it look like for our community to thrive, to be able to dig into the issues that people care about, to do that deep relational organizing and the deep canvassing, letting people know um, what's happening in politics. Anything, you know, could happen between now and next summer. And people have questions about current events when we knock on their doors as well. We also want to make sure that we're a resource for people. Um, so if people have political questions or anything anything like that, 
or want to learn more um, or get specific training, we want to be that resource as well. And then, you know, our favorite things to do are things like our back to school giveaway, where uh, we had a block party last year where we shut down roughly three blocks, had a DJ, had vendors and cotton candy and all sorts of games. And and, uh, we gave out close to, um, I think, close to maybe a thousand or so book bags um, for that and have things like our toy drive. So being able to support our community in that way. So people know that not every conversation we have is just about politics, but it's more of a well-rounded conversation and relationship, too. That's really interesting. It embeds you in the community. I, I and you're it, it, tell me about the community you focus on. You're talking about black leadership. You're in Milwaukee. This is where you were born and raised. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me about the community that you are focused on. Yeah, so Milwaukee, um, I'm sure folks know, is incredibly segregated. And so when we say the north side of Milwaukee, um, you can be sure that we're likely talking about black residents. Um, The north side is also home, unfortunately, to the most incarcerated zip code, 53206. And so um, having a zip code and having a community that is impacted by mass incarceration, what does that mean as folks are getting out? Um, You know, when will their voting rights be restored. Uh, There's so many times um, I I could tell you about when we have conversations with people on the doors and, you know, we ask people, hey, you know, are you going to vote on Tuesday? And they say, I can't vote. I'm a felon. And we ask, hey, are you off paper? Are you off supervision? And they're like, yeah, I've been off. Um, And so that whole time they could have been voting and we're the ones to actually break the news that their voting rights are restored. Mm -hmm. Um, So we see a lot of disinvestment. I think in our community, you can drive down the streets and you can see Um, When you're entering one side of town into the other, because the neighborhoods change, um, you can see what's invested in and what isn't. Um, So it's a community that we um, intentionally moved our office into the 53206 zip code. And while we cover, you know, the north side of Milwaukee, we want to show a little extra love there. And we're also excited that uh, recently we've expanded to the Racine and Kenosha areas as well, too. Um, We actually were able to open a brick and mortar office in Racine uh, just last summer, too. So we're excited to continue out to build out those programs down there, a little bit closer to where you all are. Right. We do a lot of canvassing in Racine, that's for sure. It's a day trip for us, Mm -hmm. and that helps uh, bring out more people. But uh, we are election canvassers more than relational canvassers over the border. Anyway, here in town, we have some other uh, opportunities. But, yeah, um, I'm struck by uh, your focus on developing leaders, young local leaders of color specifically. Um, Talk to me about some of your success there and what you are uh, developing these leaders to do. Yeah, so leadership development has always been really important to me um, as I'm a product of it. I didn't really realize it at the time. And one of my first mentors took me about a, a year or so to be like, you're developing me, aren't you? Um, <laughs> so you kind of see, yeah, you kind of see when people kind of take you under their wing and, and see something in you and want to pull it out or, um, you know, really kind of refine your, your own crafts and your own skill set. And so that's something we wanted to do um, here locally. And part of the reason was that there were so many folks after the 2016 election that didn't feel that they were meaningfully engaged by a candidate or a campaign or anything. And so we wanted to really have this kind of for us, by us model 
Um, we weren't going to wait for folks to knock on our doors. We were going to train folks from the community to do that ourselves. Um, and I know a lot of times people try to plug in and say, hey, can we knock doors with you? Can we canvas with you all? Um, and we're saying, you know, we are able to add that extra context and the conversations just hit a little bit different when you know it's someone that can relate to you and that's someone that understands the neighborhoods and, and the city um, and the issues at hand as well. And so for us, it looks like, you know, hiring what we call in and putting them through at least 30 hours of training before they even knock their first door. Um, and then being able to give them regular ongoing trainings um, in internal development. And one of the successes, I was just talking about it earlier, um, was last year when we hired our, our last set of ambassadors. Um, that was the first time that myself and our deputy director, Keisha, uh, we didn't lead the new ambassador orientation. It was the um, previous ambassadors that had been there for quite some time that we're actually leading that 30-hour training, teaching them about civics, teaching them about um, the, blo the block mission and the work and all of that. And so it was kind of a proud kind of mama bear moment to yeah. sit back and to see the fruits of the labor of, you know, I remember day one and having this vision and wondering, can I get this thing off the ground? Um, and then to kind of sit back and kind of see the team step up into their own leadership, support each other, and then even develop other people that they know outside of work. You know, people are having these conversations with their neighbors and are now starting to um, be a resource in their own neighborhoods and communities, even off the clock. Yeah. Sustainability in action. You, you make it sound like um, you've been working at this for a while, 10, 15 <laughs> years, but I don't think that's true, is it? It is actually, is it? Um, yeah, uh, to, yeah. I started organizing in 2007, so um, <laughs> last year, uh, last fall, actually marks my 15th year. Oh wow! Um, started organizing, exactly. yeah, my senior year of high school, um, and then really just kind of took a deep dive, um, feet first, my freshman year of college. Um, got involved with the ACLU and a lot of other student organizing. So a lot of that has kind of uh, taught me a lot along the ways of how to kind of um, do things a little bit differently and kind of what brings me to my work today. Ah, so how long has Block been around? Block has been around for five years. Okay, um, We launched in, yeah, November of 2017, yeah. Yeah, that was a pivotal year for everyone. Um, <laughs> yeah. A lot of great groups were started then. That's what I had in mind. I thought that was uh, yep. where you, you really started up. And... Um, in terms of election impact, um, you, you've had some significant impact on local and national elections, I would say, turning out people of color. I want to hear more about that and turn the conversation a little more toward elections, but we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Patty Vasquez. I am honored to have hosted Driving It Home for the last year. But it seems like we never have enough time to talk. And since I've been doing the traffic reports, I realize how long it actually takes to drive it home. So as we head into the holiday season, I want to spend more time with you. And we've decided to add an hour to the show every day. Thanks to my sponsors, Kids Above All, European and U.S. Auto Body, and Monaco Brewing for making this all possible. And, of course, my WCPT family. And I couldn't do this without you. So tune in every day, 5 to 7 p.m., Monday through Friday. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Billy in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. And we're talking with Angela Lang, Executive Director of Block 
Black Leaders Organizing Communities, who, uh, which is a model organization for organizing communities. That's why it's in the name. But really, Angela, the work that you are doing with continual relational organizing, which is a new buzzword, um, and more than a buzzword, it's a really highly impactful way to organize rather than just knocking on doors at election time having continual communication and activities and interactions to be part of the community so that when you come back at election time, um, people know you, they respect you, and uh, they'll work with you. It, it It's fundamentally what organizations, established organizations like unions have done uh, for a long time. They have a membership base that they can relate to. You're building your own um, community for election time, similar, right? Mm-hmm. I um, actually worked for a labor union um, a while back, my first job out of college, and I think that's also where I got a lot of kind of the strategy and understanding um, how people understand their sense of power and also how they understand their sense of community and how those two things kind of tie together. So absolutely very similar to um, kind of the membership type of model that a lot of unions and other progressive organizations have. Yeah, makes sense. Um, So you have, I would guess, a challenge ahead of you for this election, though, because turnout is not easy, but uh, easier when there's a presidential election or even a statewide governor on the ticket. What you have now, I think purposefully, because those who plan elections um, plan them to their own advantage, but what you have now are municipal elections with the state Supreme Court race. What kind of turnout do you typically see uh, in your district and statewide for an election like this, an off-year election? Yeah, I mean, it, it varies very widely, and I think um, this kind of interesting spot that we're in with the pandemic, is it over, is it not? Some people are pretending as it is. Um, we still see how that's having an impact. Um, you know, we've seen in 2020 when we had to vote in person, um, it got national media attention that we were the first state had to vote in April right. of 2020. Um, and turnout was, uh, I think, a little bit higher than expected. Um, and people stood out in the lines. And I think people now are determined to make their votes heard and their voices heard. Um, Um, Just because there's been so many, um, I think, very clear and concerted attacks on um, voter rights. And so I'm going to be very curious. But we also know that spring elections, um, especially after, you know, a midterm, are are hard. People are tired. People are like, didn't we just have an election? Um, Why should I care about something like the state Supreme Court if I'm never going to go in front of it? So it's a lot of education as well. Yeah. I mean, that's why our Chicago municipal elections, our mayoral elections are on the same schedule. Um, They follow the midterms when people are tired and they won't turn out and they can use their machine and historically use the machine to turn out the voters they want and discourage the ones they don't want. Um, But you're right. I think uh, we turned the tables in that election uh, in 2020 uh, when there was a bold effort to carry on the election with uh, subdued turnout. That was the whole point that the uh, Republican yeah. leaders wanted. And uh, we worked the phones and you were on the streets to the best of your abilities. And we turned out uh, with a lot of other partners, turned out voters statewide yeah. that shocked everyone and put our progressive justice on the bench. Uh, yeah. So 
um, what what are the barriers right now? Because I know over over the last couple of years there have been uh, limiting drop boxes and um, mm-hmm. ID issues. Um, I was a poll watcher uh, in the pr- uh, primary last year, and uh, know the the ID requirements are ridiculous. That is, you yeah. could register. What I saw happen is you could register on site. Um, without a photo ID, but then when you went to vote, you had to have one um, to measure against what? I just, uh, anyway, it made no sense to me. So I'm not sure what's in place still now. Yeah, so um, I think there's there's two big things that we want to make sure that we're spreading the word about and what we're hearing as well is um, making sure that people do know that absentee drop boxes are no longer available. Um, they were gone and eliminated before last November, but just in case people forgot or, you know, whatever, want to make sure that people have to um, plan ahead. You have to actually put your ballot in the mailbox, so you want to account for um, the time it takes through to go through the postal system itself versus a ballot drop box, it would be received that same day. Um, So accounting for potential postal delays and things like that. So making sure that people plan well in advance. Another thing that we heard a lot about, um, especially in the November election, is that making sure that people double check uh, their polling um, place. Because with redistricting, a lot of people's polling places may have moved. And I got reports um, of people from that actually worked the polls on November saying that they were turning away hundreds of people because they were at the wrong polling location. And who knows if those people actually have the means or the time to go to the correct one. Um, I can imagine not everyone did. And so making sure that people do have that vote plan and they uh, know and double check their polling place is going to be really important for us. Yeah. Is this has it changed since the midterm or it changes before the midterm, right? It, yeah, it changed mm-hmm. before the midterm. Yeah. And so a lot of people were turned away. And so ideally, we want to make sure that people go in with a plan. So um, they're they're not just saying, oh, I voted there normally, so I'm just going to go here. No, we want everyone to double check and triple check. Yeah. And I remember that from my poll watching experience uh, also. Uh, up in Sheboygan is where I was. And um, somebody came in and been to two places already. She was dedicated. Mm. Um, and they wrong library. And then it turned out not to be the library at all. And then she, yeah, but she ended up and she voted. Um, you have to have that yeah. kind of commitment. Uh, in so, yeah. much, so much at stake right now. And uh, I'd like to dream for a moment. How might all that change if we have a progressive majority on the state Supreme Court? Supreme Court has upheld these um restrictions as not being discriminatory, but maybe new lawsuits then could be filed. Is that possible? Yeah, I think that's the that's the thinking right now. Um, also, it just gives us another um, advantage for us, right? We have the governor, um, which is great, but um, he's very limited in um, the legislature and the makeup of the legislature. So he basically is what we call playing goalie and kind of just defending and blocking and vetoing really terrible bills. And so being able to flip the court also allows for um, a little bit more wiggle room and um, kind of just keeping the 
the Republicans a little bit contained just to the legislature, but to have that second branch of government, I think is going to be really key and, and really important for a lot of folks. And also, depending on um, which um, person gets out of the uh, primary on our side and potentially into the general, um, if it is candidate Everett Mitchell, uh, we would have an opportunity to make history for the first time and actually have a black justice elected. Um, so there's a lot of different varying uh, things at, at stake with this election. That's exciting. I know he comes out of Dane County, and I've read a lot of great things about him. I want to talk about the specific candidates and the specter of the runoff. Looks like we're going to take another break. I'm looking at Lady B, who's nodding her head. Uh, This is Marge Halpern here for Joan Esposito Live, local and progressive. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. I'm talking with Angela Lang, the executive director of Block Black Leaders Organizing Communities, in particular communities in Milwaukee. Thanks for hanging on with me, Angela. I hope you have just a couple more minutes because I want to talk to you about the election structure. Yeah, absolutely. We, we know exactly what you're facing because we have also an overly crowded field in our mayoral race and a runoff to follow. And this uh, strategically is not like your typical primary general election um, where we always say, you know, Democrats vote from the heart in a primary and use your head in the general. That means you got to come together again around whoever is your party's candidate. But this is a nonpartisan election as our mayoral race is. We have nine candidates, in case you haven't been following that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were talking earlier about a new poll that shows 75% of Chicagoans do not want to re-elect Mayor Lightfoot, but they're not unified behind any one of the other eight candidates. So she may Mm -hmm. emerge anyway. And that's not dissimilar to what you have, right? So you have two conservatives and two progressives could end up with two conservatives in the runoff, but that's probably not likely, right? Yeah, I know um, people were kind of concerned um, when uh, Jennifer Doro jumped in. She was the last one to kind of jump in. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was with the high-profile Daryl Brooks case, as folks remember, out of the Waukesha area. Um, and That is, I will like, clarify for those who don't, um, he's the one who was convicted on charges driving his vehicle through the Christmas parade in Waukesha in 21. Yes. But she is a conservative candidate, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, This was kind of her kind of claim to fame. A lot of folks really didn't know her um, before then and really can't speak to any of her other cases before then. Um, And so I think a lot of people kind of just freaked out because she was having this moment where she was kind of being celebrated for this particular case. And then people kind of started to peel back the layers and um, didn't really kind of declare her as the hero that they once thought that she was. Um, But anyways, I I go on to say that um, if two conservatives do get out, um, of the primary, then we have some serious problems. 
problems mm-hmm. uh, that we need to talk about um, outside of the candidates. I don't think it's a candidate issue or anything like that. It would be a mobilization issue, and that would be um, very troubling on our side. But um, I'm very confident that that is not going to happen. You, uh, what are the chances you could have two progressives end up in the runoff? Probably also not. I mean, <laughs> I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, I will say that the only time I could see that is there's you know a lot of crossover from maybe um, conservative women, for example, who uh, maybe draw the line at abortion access. That's the only way I could see something like that, which is kind of this overwhelming, um, you know, folks on, on the right that actually are like, I'm going to cross over. But um, that would need to be a significant group of folks. I can imagine there may be some um, that are because um, abortion is their issue in this particular election. But I don't think it'd be enough to actually get two progressives out of the primary. Right. So the two progressives, uh, there is a woman whose name I'm going to try to pronounce, Janet Protasiewicz and uh, Everett Mitchell. Uh, They're probably both in the same place on the abortion access, aren't they? Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, I know Janet, I believe, is running ads around abortion access. And um, Everett, I've seen him talk about that as um, as much as well, too. So, um, you know, they always have to be very careful in how they talk about their stances in case cases go in front of them. Um, but it's my understanding that, um, yes, they uh, would be potentially um, on the right side of things. Mm-hmm. And you have endorsed Everett Mitchell. I get your newsletter in case you couldn't tell, because I think I've quoted from it already. <laughs> But I'll quote from it again, um, where you said last week, Everett is one of the kindest, most compassionate individuals I have ever met, which is uh, quite a strong endorsement. We need him in our state's highest court. We see time and again where the law has been stacked against our community, which is what we've been talking about for the last half hour. We are long overdue to elect someone who has our lived experience. How does that line, unpack that a little bit. Tell me what that means to you and why that uh, puts uh, your endorsement in his corner and not in uh, Janet Protaskowitz. Yeah, I mean, there, there's several reasons. One, um, I want to make it very clear, it wasn't just um, just purely representation, right? I think mm-hmm. a lot of times people think, oh, it's the black organization supporting the black candidate. Um, we have a more sophisticated right. analysis than that. But representation is a part of that. But um, I think what struck us the most about um, him when we sat down with him was how um, so many of our team members felt that they could connect with him in his upbringing, in his story, um, and the, the challenges and obstacles that he has faced. And so he spoke to them in a way that other candidates may not have. Um, They were able to relate to him in this uh, very clear way. But then also, as he currently is a judge in Dane County um, in the juvenile court, one of the first things he did was make sure that the bailiffs took the handcuffs off the children. Right? He doesn't call them delinquent. He calls them Mr. or Mrs. He treats them with dignity. Um, And having that type of perspective, especially in a juvenile court, um, and that level of compassion, I think is desperately needed in that um, area. And so when I talk about lived experience, you know, we, we're living in these moments, and I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, bring up folks like Tyree Nichols and the mm-hmm. challenges that we face and the laws um, and, you know, the courts having to decide and interpret these laws. Um, imagine living in this moment, this uh, racial reckoning, right, as, as some folks may call it, um, and not having people at the table to interpret these laws that have your lived experience. 
rights. Um, I think it's incredibly important to have someone who has um, seen what the system has done brutally to our families and our communities to be able to understand what it means to be a black person and how we interact with the justice system, whether it's the criminal justice system or even things like policies and how the Supreme Court interprets laws. We see how all of those those courts have impacted us. And I think it's important to make sure that communities have representation as those laws are being interpreted for our communities. Have you seen any polls? Do you have any indication of how this is going? I know the one poll that counts, everybody says, is the one at the ballot box. And the last time Wisconsin voters went to vote for the Supreme Court, uh, you knocked Daniel Kelly out by a margin of 10, 10 and a half percent, I think. So um, any indication of how the race is going? I mean, I think a lot of folks feel that it's 50-50. I think there's a lot of strong feelings on both sides. Um, And I think specifically abortion is going to be a key factor. Um, And I think what's really um, drawing, I think, a lot of folks in our community, too, is this, um, this idea that we can actually make history um, when you're actually voting and you're excited to vote, right? That's palatable. Mm-hmm. People want to join you. It's not just, oh, okay, well, I'm voting for this person because we need to stop the bad guys. Um, and I think that's what um, Everett is doing, is being able to inspire new voters. I actually just learned the story today that one of our ambassadors um, who joined us you know, last year, he was having a conversation with his dad and his dad doesn't believe in voting. He said it doesn't change, it doesn't do anything. And um, our ambassador basically did the script on his own dad and now has got his dad to commit to voting um, forever because he feels important to be a part of something and to be a part of that history. Well, that's exciting. And on a national scale, that's how uh, Barack Obama was elected. And it was pretty exciting exactly. to watch when people get motivated like that. Well, I want to thank you for uh, all the work that you do. This has been a fascinating conversation. I started by saying how impressed I am personally with your organization, as if that matters. But um, I am. And uh, I've worked with a lot of nonprofits and uh, a lot of uh, campaign organizations. And you uh, really know what you're doing and you're committed and uh, to go back to your uh, bio on your website you have written and I presume you wrote this yourself maybe not but I think so her journey in organizing hasn't always been easy but through it all she has remained a fierce advocate for securing more seats at the table for those who represent the new American majority Um, it's an impressive goal an important one and if anyone's up to the task Angela it's you Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's been a great conversation, and uh, we're having it today, in case you didn't know, because uh, Indivisible Chicago is launching Wisconsin phone banks to help turn out the vote, Uh, not for any particular candidate, but we do have lists of progressive uh, voters that will be calling, and I think they'll be moving in your direction. And uh, we are starting those phone banks this afternoon, and that is going to be our next conversation uh, coming up in just a minute. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. 
So are you inspired by what you just heard from Angela Lang working the streets in Milwaukee um, to turn out the vote for progressive state Supreme Court candidates? Or are you now nervous like I am about the possible result of that election, understanding that the 2024 election might actually rest on this one um, because we could tip the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin uh, to be progressive and help ensure access to uh, vote uh, for people of color and Democrats in particular, progressives and uh, those that are targeted by the GOP in Wisconsin. And I say we because there is something we can do about it. And that's what we're going to talk about now. I want to welcome my friend and a comrade, Mike Lenahan from Indivisible Chicago Alliance. Mike is the phone bank coordinator for Indivisible Chicago, part of a whole team, I'm sure he's going to be quick to say, uh, who lead these phone banks. And uh, in just a few minutes, like literally at 5 o'clock, Mike will be relaunching our Wisconsin phone banks to help turn out the vote for this important election. Mike, how you doing? Pretty good, March. How are you? I'm good. I appreciate your joining me in these minutes just before your first uh, your first phone bank because I know you have a couple things you could be doing. How to work it? Yeah. So um, you know, as you do your training and your uh, uh, process for that phone bank, if you missing some key information or got the wrong slide, you can blame me for distracting you. Okay. Yeah. He will, too. I'm pretty sure of that. Well, uh, tell me about the phone bank. Who are you calling, and what are you telling them? Well, uh, at this stage of the game, uh, we're calling uh, with the February 21st primary in view. And uh, as I think you have already, or your listeners have already been told, there are four candidates for the Supreme Court running two liberals and two conservatives um we're trying to make sure that at least one of the liberals survives to the general election in april uh and at that point i'm sure we'll change gears uh but for now we are calling democrat uh voters in wisconsin who we believe are strong or at least leaning towards being democrats you can't always tell in Wisconsin uh, because uh, people don't uh, officially join one party or uh, don't commit to one party or, or the other. So we have to figure this out uh, by data uh, who we're uh, calling. Mm-hmm. But we're uh, calling Democrats, and at this stage of the game, when the Wisconsin uh, Democratic Party has not Uh, chosen a candidate yet. That's what the primary is for. We're just uh, trying to make sure that people understand the importance of this election, all the things that you guys have been talking about this afternoon. And we're trying to make sure that they know who are the good candidates and who are the bad candidates. Because, um, as you know, uh, Judges are not uh, top of mind uh, for most people. Most of these names are unfamiliar to all the voters, and we have to work hard over the next few weeks to uh, impress the voters with the names of the good guys and make sure that they turn out uh, to uh, elect one of them in the primary. Of course, we'll take 
take two if they want to put elect two progressives in the primary. Then our work will be done. <laughs> we'll go from good to better. We can make our choices. Yeah, it sounded from what Angela was saying that there's a, a potential spoiler there in the Waukesha County Judge Jennifer Doro, who uh, is the one who presided over the trial of the man who drove his vehicle into the Waukesha Christmas Parade. Um, and she right. was championed for that. And I think people apparently looked deeper into her record and found she is not progressive, although she helped deliver the right verdict in that case. Um, but if they look at all deeper, they're going to find that she has conservative views on issues that matter to voters and voter turnout. So um, that may be part of the information that your callers can share, right? That's right. Uh, we uh, try to equip our callers with uh, all the information they're going to need to talk and talk comfortably with voters when they get them on the phone. So uh, one of the things we tell them about Jennifer Darrow is uh, she was once asked in a, a legal questionnaire what was the worst uh, decision, Supreme Court decision of all time, and she picked the Texas decision uh, that um, struck down the Texas law banning uh, sodomy. Uh, she feels felt pretty strongly that uh, sodomy should still be banned in Texas. Uh, of course, sodomy is another name for homosexuality. Something right. that we, <laughs> we have much more uh, polite uh, terms for. Yeah. Yeah. Sympathetic terms for. Right. Right. Um, okay. Well, that's an important fact to share with voters. I'm glad you're bringing that one out for sure. And you said talk and talk comfortably. So I know from working on these phone banks myself that a lot of people are nervous about phone banking. Oh, I hate to make the call. I won't know what to say. Um, there's technology. I have to use my phone sometimes and the computer. And how am I going to do this? Um, but I also know that we have an answer for those folks. What do you tell them? Well, uh, it's, it's not so much what we tell them as what we uh, do for them. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, try to uh, train them up good, uh, equip them for every eventuality, and uh, hold their hands if they need it, and um, help them along in uh, every step uh, of the process. We do everything we can to make you comfortable uh, before you even start. But uh, one thing that we do tell them is that uh, we have research that shows that phone banking uh, can increase turnout in an, uh, in an election by as much as two and a half percent. We all know how close uh, Wisconsin elections tend to go, and this one's not going to be an exception. It's going to be 50-50, uh, give or take uh, one or two-tenths of a percent, and uh, we want to be the ones who uh, come out on the top of that, and uh, that's why we're on the phones. Uh, it, uh, it's a great thing to do uh, for Chicagoans. Uh, it's our neighbor state. Um, but uh, we can call to all areas of it from right from home. Uh, 
And of course, we can uh, affect the outcome of uh, a a very important election uh, right next door. So I'm going to let you go to the phones because I'm looking at the clock if you're not. And I know you I promise to get you out. uh You're right. But I do want to urge people to join these phone banks. Um, I'll be on with you next week. Obviously not right now, but next week. And uh, we'll be doing them uh, every Wednesday. And you can sign up at IndivisibleChicago.com. And I urge you to do that. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. And good luck with the phone bank. We're nearing our time to sign off, too. And I want to be sure that you... uh, Get your information from Indivisible. You can follow Indivisible at Indivisible Shy, C-H-I, on Twitter, Mastodon, and Post. You can follow me at Marge Halper, and I spell that M-A-R-J-H-A-L-P-E-R-I-N. And uh, I'm on Twitter also. I'm Mastodon and Post, but I'm not doing it yet. I'm going to be honest. So follow me on Twitter, and we'll have some more conversations. Uh, Happy to be here this afternoon. Uh, on on the afternoon when others are uh, observing Tyree Nichols' funeral, we've had some amazing conversations about the Chicago Police Department, safety and security on the CTA, what's happening over the border. We have a tough mayoral election facing us. Let's keep that runoff in mind and uh, make sure that you cast your vote and make it a vote that counts. Happy to be here for Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. <laughs> 